0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? right. I know what I'm up against. Come on, it's Memorial Day, school is out, summer is here. Let's get after it. Romans chapter 15 is where we left off. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 15. We're going to handle verses 1 through 13 this morning. As you're finding that, let me mention a couple things. One, praise God as we think about and remember Memorial Day weekend. People in our country that have served and paid the ultimate sacrifice, so grateful for Look, no country's perfect, but I'm just grateful that God and His providence caused me to be born here. And so I'm thankful for those that have served us so well. And on a Sunday like this weekend, Sunday, it makes me think about all the people in our church that are currently serving us. Quite a few soldiers in our church are deployed. And so thank God for them. We're going to pray for them in just a moment. as you're finding Romans 15, let me just tag on what Springer said about Conrad and Way coming at the end of June. Um, he has a nickname. Conrad and Way has a nickname uh, around the, the world, kind of in our stream. And have you guys heard of this, um, this pastor in England back in the 1800s? His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You may have heard his name a few times if you've been around Crosspoint for a long time. He's maybe the most famous preacher outside of the Bible in the history of the Christian church. Well, Conrad, just to give you, just to whet your appetite for what a phenomenal preacher Conrad Mbiwe is, his nickname is kind of globally, the African Spurgeon. So you want to come to that, invite some friends, and you're going to want to come to that evening service with us. And then pray also, if you would, we're going to do a preaching seminar that Monday with Dr. Mbiwe for local pastors. We're going to try and get any of them to come and just hear from this brother about Christ-centered gospel-centered preaching, and so we're hoping that we can be a good influence on our city and in the pulpits of our city as, as uh, we expose this dear brother to, to the local pastors in our town if we can get them to come. And speaking of preaching, um, I'm by myself this Sunday because my son Jacob is preaching again at Rose Hill Baptist Church down the street, and so mama went to support her son But praise God for what the Lord is doing in Jacob's life. So we're going to pray for Rose Hill as well. Let's let's do that. Let's pray right now before we read our text. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, thank you for our country. We know it is imperfect, but yet it is clear that in these past over two hundred years or so, you have you have in many ways blessed this land not merely to be a a prosperous country or to be a superpower or any of those things, but in your kind providence for for the advance of the gospel. We thank you for that. And we do thank you that you have used the means of a military that has fought wars and been in conflicts and some that have laid down their lives. We thank you for the means that you've used to bring America to pass and into existence. Lord, we do not worship any earthly kingdom. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. But we do thank you for this country and for men and women who've laid down their lives. And we, we pause to pray for those even from our very church who are abroad and overseas in very dangerous places, putting themselves in harm's way to protect our freedoms, to serve our national interests. We ask for your grace to them and for your strength and um, endurance for their spouses that are back home, even here in this church. Lord, be with them. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ in our city. Lord, we pray for other churches in our city. In particular, this morning, I pray for Rose Hill Baptist and my son Jacob. I thank you for the gifts that that you've given him. And I ask that you um, help him to stick close to the text and to hold up Christ and that you fan into flame whatever you may be doing in his life. Lord, thank you for the Bible. We just read earlier that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's so much that we can say about just that sentence, but. At least part of that is the fact that you've given us your word, which is true and authoritative and has all power to rebuke and correct and mold and to make us into the people of God. So as as we look at this chapter this this morning in Romans 15, the first half of it, help us become more like Jesus as a result of our time together. Lord, Lord, stir more love for the gospel, more love for one another, more love for the church in our hearts as we look at this text. And for my friends that are here today, I pray that if they don't know Jesus, that if there's any among us that are not born again, that you would bring forth life from spiritual death and that you would cause them to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe in Jesus. Who alone is worthy and who alone is sufficient. Give us joy now as we study your text. What a privilege, what a privilege. What a privilege. That we can look at your word and we can extol and marinate in the glory of God in the scriptures. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you. I I get to do this, God. I can't believe this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I pray for your glory among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Gosh, I'm an emotional wreck, and I don't know why. My son has just graduated from high school. He's preaching. My other son got on a plane and went to China for the summer. Oh, Lord, help me. All right. I mean, I'm happy. That I'm really in a good mood. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. Let's read the text so we can get into this and get out of my, get out of my feels. All right. Romans 1. Now, if you're joining us with this for the first time this morning, we've been working through Romans for the past couple years. (laughs) And guess what? We are actually going to finish Romans this summer. I think before Conrad comes at the end of June, we're going to finish Romans. No, no. No, no. (laughs) Don't even. And we have a few chapters left. You may say, are you speeding up? Well, no. The 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 setting of the last two chapters are more Paul kind of saying goodbye, and so I think they lend themselves to handling them quicker, although we're going to get into some dicey stuff, like next week we're going to look at signs and wonders and whether or not they're still valid to, today, and then we're going to look at uh, heretics the week after that, and we're going to even look at Phoebe, who's a deaconess, so we're going to talk about whether women can serve as deacons and their role in the church, and then we're going to talk about crushing Satan under our feet through the gospel, so there's some stuff left now, there's some stuff left, but I think we're going to get through these next two chapters pretty quickly. Uh, but this morning, let me read verses 1 through 13, and we'll get into it. Now, I started that all off by just saying, hey, if you're with us for the first time, um, we have this value here that God's Word is inspired. We work through it. And this morning is a kind of, you know how sometimes people, you see people in the gym, and all they do is do like curls, you know, bicep fork, you know, just for the beach or whatever. Um, I think that's what Christians do when they neglect portions of the Bible. They don't don't work the other muscles that are good for you. So this morning is kind of one of those Sundays where we're going to work other auxiliary parts of the body to grow us in grace. And these are actually the Sundays where I think we grow the most. So let me read verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting Psalm 69, verse 9 there. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, the ethnic Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to perform the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Okay, I think that the best way to handle this text this morning is to look at each paragraph. I think Verses 1 through 7 is a paragraph, and then verses 8 through 13 is another paragraph. And I want to summarize what each of these paragraphs says with a sentence. So the the first summary sentence of verses 1 through 7 that we're going to look at a little bit more closely, but I want to give you what I think this paragraph is saying in just a quick summary sentence. I'll give that to you first, and then we'll work our way back through that. Summary sentence number one is this, that we should put one another first just as Christ has done for us, so that we may glorify God together. We should put one another first, just as Christ has done for us, so that we might glorify, we may glorify God together. And in a way, I think that is a kind of summary of all that Paul has been saying from, from chapter 14 all the way through uh, this first part of chapter 15. So let's look again just a little bit more closely through the first seven verses. Verse 1 there. He says, we who are strong, and he's talking about those whose consciences, remember the context of the past few weeks, what's going on in chapter 14 is this potential controversy, these sore spots in the body of Christ in the church in Rome, where you have these stronger Christians whose consciences are stronger. They're not as bothered by uh, dietary laws and things that you can or cannot eat or what what day the Christian should regard as holy. These are the particular issues. Or whether or not you can drink wine or not. These are the issues that are, are bubbling up in the, the church in Rome in the first century that are causing a little bit of tension between those Christians whose consciences are strong and those Christians who, whose consciences are weak, are more tender. And Paul is saying that there may be some Christians in the church who haven't fully grasped the freedom that all that God has brought in the gospel through Jesus' obedience to the Old Testament law and sacrifice to bear the wrath for our not obeying God's law and then giving us His righteousness. And so as a result of that, Christians are free. But he's saying, even though you're free to eat what you want, even if it's been sacrificed to a pagan idol, in the meat market in Rome, you can buy that steak and you can eat it without fearing that, that, that there's any sort of you know, thing wrong with that meat because Christ, there is no th- such thing as a false god, so you're, in, you're free. But Paul is saying that even though you're free, your freedom should be limited, your liberty should be limited by not wanting to hinder or to cause to stumble a person whose conscience might be a little weaker. I think that's what all of 14 is about. And he's, in a sense, summarizing that. And so he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This word bear, I think, is really important. I want us to think about it a little bit more closely before we move on. He says we should bear with the failings of the weak. This is the same word that Paul uses In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, where he says this, the same word, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What what he means by bear is we're to put on our shoulders and to carry one another. If you're in the military, you know if you've done any combat life-saving trainer, maybe you've actually had to do this in a real situation where you've had to maybe carry somebody who is injured or or is 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 hurt and in some way you, you realize that we have to put their weight on us and Paul is saying that part of living together part of the consequence of all that God has done for you is not just for your individual good to put together but to put you together in a family where we carry one another's weight and that's what the life of the church should be like. We, we, we're, we're mutual weight carriers for one another. We, and, and, and to do that, isn't there just implied in that a kind of awareness of what's going on around you? People that you know, people that you're in relationship with. Church isn't just a place that you come. It's, it's something that you are with other Christians. And just a one little gentle nudge, maybe to some of us that are a little bit more private. Paul says it, the same word in Galatians 6, verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of christ um' something that I notice just pastorally uh, with people sometimes is we, we we some of us tend to be very private and we don't share things that are going on in our lives because maybe it's a, a kind of fear of embarrassment or we just don't want to be a burden, or maybe even there's some sort of fear of man or maybe maybe even you've kind of made an idol out of your reputation and you don't want anybody to think that you don't have everything together. Well, you know, first of all, this just in, uh, behind the curtain, all of us are in some level or another wrecks, okay? Just, just FYI, you know, if you're, if you're here for the first time and you're looking down the row and everybody looks squared away, oh, come on. Come on. They're not, all right, they're not. But but if you're maybe a more of a private person and there's, you just never really open up to other Christians, not only are, are, you, are you not doing what this text tells us to do, to bear one another's burdens, think about it this way, just to put a little guilt on you. <laughs> you're actually hindering other people from being good Christians. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you don't allow other people to bear your burdens, you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting the rest of us from actually obeying the scriptures. <laughs> So I, I, I was kidding about putting guilt on you. That's the last thing you need if you're an introvert. But you see what I'm, you see, you see what I'm you see what I'm saying? Is that Paul is saying that we together, when we live in this kind of way, we actually fulfill this New Testament law of Christ, which is what we're obligated to do as believers. And so let's help each other's, let's help each other be good Christians by being real with each other, okay? I think that's what that text is, is saying. Much more we could say about that, but let's keep going. Verse 3, for Christ, okay, this is, this is I think, so important. Where, where we see Paul's reasoning go here. He's, he's telling us to, to, to put each other first. But why put each other first? And He tells us in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now that's interesting. So, uh, he's quoting Psalm 69 in particular, verse nine, which we won't take the time to read. But Psalm 69, verse nine, which he directly quotes here, is a psalm of David, where David is writing during a time of distress, and David is writing it in a first person sense, where he's he's speaking of himself about the Lord's honor in his life and how he is being chastised and harassed by his enemies. And so he's saying, David, in Psalm 69, this king of Israel, that the reproaches, the scorn of those who scorned you, meaning God, fell on me, is what David is saying. So he's, he's, he's realizing that his stand for being God's man, God's king, is causing him scorn. And we realize that that Old Testament, that 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 shadow, which is what Psalm 69 is, is actually pointing not to an earthly king, but it's pointing to to Jesus, who is the actual fulfillment, the real fulfillment of this Old Testament shadow, which is David's kingship. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 3, is he is applying this shadow of David writing about his kingship in Psalm 69 to the Reality of the kingship of Jesus. So this is a, this is a lesson for us before we, before we look at what, what Paul is saying is here, is that the Old Testament, all of it, is a shadow that is actually pointing to the gospel, in fact, more specifically, is pointing to Jesus. So when you read the Old Testament, you should read it with with Christ-tinted glasses. In fact, I think Jesus encourages us to do the very same thing in, in John chapter five. Um, he's, he's, he's upbraiding, he's chastising the religious leaders of his day, and he's saying, you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you will find life, but you miss the point that it's all about me. I am the life that they're pointing to. And then at the end of Luke chapter 24, he's, he's on, this is after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus, walking with his two disciples, post-resurrection, he's obscuring himself so that they can't really understand. They don't know, at least by his, his physical presence next to them, who he is. And he asks them what's going on. They're down and dejected because this one whom they followed is crucified. And now they're just kind of going back to their regular life. And he says, oh, you foolish, don't, you slow in heart. Don't you realize that all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, it was actually pointing to me And so then Jesus expounds the whole, there's a sermon, a seven-mile walk to Emmaus, a sermon by Jesus going through the whole Old Testament, showing how it all points to him. And it said that their hearts burned within them. Jesus, the greatest preacher of all time, preaching a seven-mile walk one-hour walk or however it long take to walk to Emmaus, sermon on the whole Old Testament. It's taken us two years to go through Romans. Jesus preached the whole Old Testament in one walk. And it burned within their hearts because it's all about Jesus. So when we read the Old Testament, we should not read it as moral lessons of how to behave, but as shadows, as arrows that point to Jesus. We've used this example many times, but just by way of reminder for maybe those of us that are... are Here and haven't heard this before, a a wonderful example of this is is the story of David and Goliath. And, and, And we're prone to look at the story of David and Goliath, this little shepherd boy who throws this stone at this giant Goliath and slays the giant, this giant that's been harassing God's people. And if we're not careful, we're prone to read that story as if we are David And the moral of the story is is that we should be more like David, and we should, you know, pull up our bootstraps, don't be afraid, cinch our belt, be courageous, and slay our giants. And maybe you've even heard it taught that way. But that's absolutely not what that story is about in the Old Testament. That story is about David who's a kind of shadow of the true shepherd king who is Jesus. And so in that story, David is a kind of picture of the king warrior Jesus who's, who is coming to finally and fully slay the giant of sin and death and condemnation that has been harassing God's people. And we're not David fighting our giants. We are like Israel, scared in the woods, who have no ability to fight the giant. But we need a king, a true and better king, who will fight and slay the giant for us. And in fact, there is a king who is coming, and his name is Jesus. And that's the whole point of of the Old Testament. And, and Paul is, is reminding us of that. And he's saying that, that Christ has done what he's calling us to do in verses 1 and 2. And he has put aside his own preference. He's put aside pleasing himself. And he's gone to the cross and he's borne the scorn for us. That's what Paul is saying. But the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't just tell us what Jesus would do. It tells us what he has done, and has given us the ability to actually live it out. As we Before we move on to verse 4, I think we just need to just remember all that Christ has done for us. Paul is writing Romans 15 verse 3 and reminding us of this Old Testament allusion to the gospel, and he's saying that all on the foundation of everything that he said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's not just saying care for other people more because Jesus was your example so you need to care for it's not just like a big brother thing like your big brothers good, did good in school so now you need to do good in school that's not the gospel Paul is saying this exhortation to follow Jesus's example because of all that he said about the gospel up to this point that we are dead in our sins we can't obey God that's Romans 1 through 3 But God sent Jesus to bear the condemnation for our sin and to make us alive, to give us peace, to give us justification, to give us his spirit which dwells in our hearts, which makes us alive, which adopts us, which makes us children. That's Romans chapter eight. And now nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So not only has Jesus provided you an example of how you should treat one another, he has enabled you by his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his spirit, that he's given to indwell in you to make you alive he's not only given you an example but he has enabled you to actually follow his example that's the good news of the gospel all just in one obscure old testament illusion don't you love the bible amen verse four for whatever was written oh here man see this is good all right verse four for whatever was written in former days Paul's now he's like taking a I love this because verse 4 is a rabbit trail. And sometimes I've heard that preachers are vulnerable to go on rabbit trails. He just he it's like he quoted the Old Testament And now verse 4 really doesn't have anything to do with his argument in chapters 14 and 15, but he goes on this little rabbit trail where he does a little thought bubble side teaching of the whole point of the Old Testament and life of the Christian. So what he says in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have Hope. Let me just pause here and just just commend us to make the Bible central in our lives. The Old Testament, as I've said, is an arrow, it's a shadow that's pointing to Jesus. And even the difficult parts of the Old Testament that may be, may be drudgery to get through in your Bible reading plan are pointing us to something. They're pointing us to Jesus, and at this time, the whole Bible that God's people had in the New Testament was just the Old Testament. And this is what Paul and Peter say about the Old Testament. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. This is Paul speaking to a younger pastor, and he says, he says, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning the Old Testament which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So at this point, he's just talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying that these Old Testament books are able to make you wise. In other words, obviously, it's all pointing to Jesus. And listen to what he says in verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out. It's inspired, not in an inspirational sort of way, but it's it's the expiration, it's expired, it's breathed out by God. What that means is that God breathed the Scriptures through the means of men who wrote different books of the Bible throughout many, many years, centuries, and through God's superintendence, through the power of His Holy Spirit, what Moses and what Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Paul and Peter and James and John and all of the Bible, what they wrote down was exactly what God intended to be wrote down and he used their personalities their situations their settings all as part of his sovereign plan to bring about his word which he breathed out which because he breathed it out it's completely without air and because it's without air and it's from God has all authority and therefore he goes on to say that this word is breathed out, verse 16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this Bible equips us. It equips us. One of the things that we're going to do in a couple of weeks is we're going to talk about what I think is heresies that are still prevalent in the church today, that Uh, minimize the centrality of the Word of God in the life of the local church, where people are relying on experiences or visions or some sort of prophetic words, which I think uh, cut away from, undermine the sufficiency of the Word of God to reveal the will of God for the people of God so that they would be built for the mission of God. And that's what Paul, I think, is saying here, that the, the Word is written for our instruction, endurance, so that we might have hope. Just one more little passage in the New Testament that I think speaks about the word just to build our faith. I love this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. This is what Peter is saying about the Old Testament writers who are writing the Old Testament and pointing forward to Christ. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, and he's speaking about you know, all the Old Testament writers, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all the others, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, in other words, the gospel, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, they they were under the inspiration of God, praying, thinking about what God was inspiring them to say, what it was actually meaning. They're, They're longing, they're pointing forward to this gospel. Verse 12 it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. I think meaning the good news of the gospel through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, the apostles who brought the gospel. And look at this last point, things into which angels long to look. So the The New Testament explanation of the life and ministry and work of Jesus, which is the reality of what the Old Testament was pointing to, which we now can read and know. It's not a shadow to us. It's a reality. The Bible says that the angels, the heavenly beings, were so amazed by the things that we can just read on a Tuesday morning that they were longing to look at it. Think about that. Longing to look. the Angels are on their tippy toes longing to look at the things that we have laying around our house. That's amazing. Have you ever been on your tippy toes just wanting to see something? Have you? I remember as a kid, I went to my first Laker game. And this was when the Clippers were still, I'm losing you. Anyway, there was this famous player, and he was my favorite player. His name was Magic Irving Johnson. And it was my first Laker game, and they were coming out of the tunnel. There was a bunch of other kids in front of me, and I was longing to look and see Magic Johnson. Magic! And you know what? Come to find out, he was injured that night and wasn't playing but I got to see Kareem and all the other guys. But I'm on my tippy toes, longing to look. I just have this memory of childhood, of longing to look at this thing, this person, this, this wonderful athlete that I wanted to behold. And that's the picture here. Angels, angels, heavenly beings who have seen the creation of the universe, who have seen all that God has done throughout redemption, are on their tippy toes longing to look at what we now can read and know as the gospel, the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, became a man. That's a mystery. Nobody can fully understand that, but it happened. We read it. And he became a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he obeyed God. Where all of us, all the image bears of God, have disobeyed God. Jesus obeyed God, and then God, the Son, God Himself in the flesh, laid down His life so that he would be crucified by the ones that he created so that he could atone for their sin and satisfy God the Father. And angels are on their tippy toes saying, really? Wow. And then Jesus, who's God, who died, rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now commands all people everywhere to trust in him. And angels are longing to look at the full expression of all of this glory that we now know and can live in and can believe. Friends, your salvation is so glorious and it has so much. It has 100% totality of implications in your life that it's so beautiful that angels, heavenly beings, are longing to look at all that it means in your life. Let, let that awaken you from, from slumber, from spiritual slumber, shouldn't it? Come on, I need to be woken up. I am spiritually lazy. And I think a lot of us are too. And, and what should Scripture do for a Christian? It should cause us, it, it, make, it gives us endurance, man. Endurance. It, may, it gives us spiritual wind. It gives us encouragement because the world is discouraging and it gives us hope. It lifts our eyes above this, these 80 years that we see all that is coming. And then Paul Paul concludes this little section with a little prayer. And this is what he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So the very thing that he thinks that the scripture should bring in our life endurance and encouragement are actually God is the God of those things. So he gives them May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Just one little thing. We're going to land this plane. Verses 8 through 13, I think we'll go quicker. This idea that we are to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together. And that Christ has welcomed us. In other words, I think this is his point. Love one another. Love those who are weak in conscience. Love those who are different from you. Because Christ has loved you. Christ came to you, so you should go to others. And he did it for the glory of God. And so therefore, for the glory of God, we should strive to live together in this sort of mutually uh, uh, caring for one another sort of way. This, this word glory is such a central word in the whole, the whole Bible. In fact, you might even be able to summarize the whole Bible by saying that it's all about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This word glory, it's a Greek word, doxa. And, and there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for glory primarily is this word kabod. And the way the Greek New Testament, or the way the Greek Old Testament translates the Hebrew Old Testament, "kabod," the word, this word "kabod," glory, is this word "doxa." So, the Hebrew word "kabod" and the Greek word "doxa" are, are what we get. Our, our English word, how we the, the, all, all fill in the definition of our English word "glory," and, and we use this word "glory" a lot. You know, glory, glory, glory. I, I've told you the story when I was a young preacher. Uh, I think about this because my son is preaching his second sermon today at Rose Hill. And when I was a young preacher cutting my teeth at another church, and there were some rough ones in there, man, there were some rough ones. Rough sermons, I mean. In fact, today may be a rough sermon. I don't know. But there was this old brother in the back of the church, this old dear saint. And when he it's like he had the spiritual sense, that he knew that I was like out on a limb and just wasn't feeling, and it, was, it wasn't going real well. He would just in the back of the church, just to, I think to encourage me, he would just yell in that awkward silence when nothing was happening, no, no, no pop in the sermon, and he would just say, glory. <laughs> and that was my way of saying, thank you, brother. I know this isn't going well. Help me. My point is, is that we, I think we throw this word glory around a lot. What does it mean? I think there's so much we could say. One of the things that it means in Greek and Hebrew is it's speaking about the, the weight, the heaviness, the reputation of God. You know when you're in a room and there's somebody that's just really, really important or they just have a lot of gravity? It just, it's just sort of, you can just feel the room is tilted towards that person. That that's this times infinity, the glory of God, the weight, the, the heaviness, the joy, the gravity, the reputation, the splendor, the grandeur, all, all the verbs, all the, all the adjectives that we could add onto this, times a thousand the the glory. Of God is the point of the Christian's life and the point of the local church. And Paul is saying that we are to live together in such a way that why we're gathered isn't about ourselves, but about displaying, about putting on show the weight, the heaviness, the glory, the grandeur, the splendor, the reputation of the Creator of the universe. That's what we are doing when we think about it this way. Just one little application. How should this impact our, our, just even our church culture? I, I think when Paul says in, in verse 6 that we should with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think he's speaking about all of life, obviously. Everything that we do together, the way we interact with one another, the way we fight sin, the, the things we watch on TV, the things that we don't watch on TV, the, the conversations we have, the way we don't gossip, the, just a, a, a thousand and one things that we could say. But let me just limit it to say that I think that there is a particular sense here that when the church is gathered, our posture, our orientation is to, with one voice, glorify God. So how should this impact our our church culture? I think that what we do when we gather, I think that the best way we can actually serve people around us that don't know the Lord is to not make our worship gatherings all about people and all about us, but to make them all about the glory, the heaviness, the weight, the reputation, the glory of God because the thing that people need most is not to be made much of, not to find out better tips on how to live, not to feel better about themselves, but to feel worse about themselves so that they will run to the only one who can, where they can find themselves which is in Christ. Beware, beware of man-centered church services. Beware of them. Beware when it's all about how you can be a better self. And if you don't stick around here, go to a church where the Bible is read, where the songs are about God and not about us, and where the glory of God, the highness of God, and the humility of man is a constant theme. We strive to do this by look, but here's, here's two words I just want to put in your sort of your, your phraseology. We strive when we gather together for a kind of gladness and gravity. Uh, I think, you know, th- they go together in the, the gathering of God's people. We should be glad. Man, Jesus has rescued us. We, there, is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that not make you glad? but there should be a kind of gravity because we realize that the world is still broken and we're still wrestling with residual sin and so we're we're orienting ourselves towards God, it's not about us and so there's a gladness and a gravity. Gladness without gravity becomes flippant and gravity without gladness becomes a kind of of doldrum that nobody wants to be around but the, the glory of the gospel calls us to be glad, to be a people that worship in gladness and gravity. And I think that's what Paul is commending here. So we should put one another first just as Christ has done for us so that we might glorify God together. Okay, sentence number two, and we'll go through it very quickly, verses eight through 13. Sentence number two that I think summarizes all of this is this, is that we can abound in hope because God is faithful, in control, and can be trusted. And I think that's what he's saying here in the second paragraph, verses eight through 13. Let me read it. And in this paragraph, he's gonna string together several Old Testament quotations from Isaiah and the Psalms and a few other places, Samuel, 2 Samuel, and he's making this point, this, in a sense he's been zoomed in on this argument between the weak and the strong and whether or not you should eat vegetables or whether or not you can eat steak and meat and whether or not you should worship on this day or the other, or whether you can drink wine. He's zoomed in on that, that particular acute situation going on in the church and talking about how Christians should put aside their differences and, and love one another. And then he's going to zoom out and he's going to say, oh, but there's this, the reason I'm telling you that is because there's this grand global purpose of God to bring all peoples together, Jew and Gentile, in Christ for the glory of his name. And because God has always had that as a plan, we can know that he's bringing it into fruition. He's in control, he's faithful, and he can be trusted. And so that's why he strings together these Old Testament quotes. Let me read it. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised, in other words, Jews, to show God's truthfulness. So he lived a perfect life, obeyed the law that Old Testament Israel was called to live but couldn't because man by nature is sinful. And he laid down his life, not because he was guilty, but to stand in the stead of the guilty ones, to be punished as the law calls for, to show that God is faithful, he's truthful in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Even as God was forming his people in the Old Testament, he was always saying it's not just about Israel, it's about all the peoples that through Israel, I will bless all the nations of the earth. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. And then verse 13, this is a beautiful sentence. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I think verses 8 through 12 are kind of zoom out to encourage the church in Rome. Look, you're dealing with these little issues about reconciliation between you guys over these petty matters. Zoom out and see how God has reconciled all peoples, Jew and Gentile peoples that hated each other. He's reconciled them together through Christ and this has always been his plan and he's doing it. So let that encourage you. Let it give you endurance and let it fill you with hope that God is in control. What he said he would do, he he is doing and has done. And he summarizes it here in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy And peace in believing. So that by the power, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You may live above this fray. You may spill over. Not with a detached sort of false faux gleefulness. But a a reasoned, a scripture based, gospel saturated hope that God who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus when he comes, and he brings all of his people home with him. Friends, That we can stake our lives on that. We can deal with each other's imperfections. We can deal with the difficulty that is life in the local church. We can do it. We can abound in, in, in an eternal gospel-centered hope. We can do it because God has filled us with his Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. I I think that's worth leaning into and giving your life to in the gospel with God's people who at times can be very hard to love just like I and you can be very hard to love but God has called us to do it, to glorify God together and to abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for Paul's logic inspired by the Holy Spirit that we can prefer one another because Christ has preferred us in the gospel and not only has he preferred us he's not just our example he is our source he is our life he's our righteousness he is our redemption he hasn't just shown us the way he's made the way possible for his people he's given us a new heart he's given us his righteousness he's put your spirit in us And now we can live for you. And Lord, we need reminders. We need need reminders of all that you're doing in this world, of your great, grand, expansive plan to bring all things, all peoples, that you have called to yourself, to yourself, Jew or Gentile, religious, non-religious, a person who grew up in the church, a person who's, Lord, you will not lose any of your people. And this morning, I pray that you would call any person in this room who doesn't know you, that you would even take this obscure text in in many ways. One, a text that we might not be drawn to as, as a kind of example of, of the, of the, the clarity of the gospel and that we would see in it that you will call your people, that you will accomplish your work. And Lord, may you use that word to break through the hardness of somebody's heart, to break through unbelief this morning and awaken them to the fact that their only hope is Jesus. And they would turn from trusting in themselves and they would put their hope in Christ and their sins would be forgiven and their, their, their mind and their heart would be made new and they would live for you forever, rolling up their sleeves, marching forward with the body of Christ, leaning forward into the hope, the sure and certain hope that you will bring all your people home and we will be with you forever and ever. Or do that, I pray, for any friends in this room that don't know you. And for those of us that do, Lord, may may we fall more in love with each other because Jesus has welcomed us. Jesus has welcomed us, so we should welcome one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.